Hi, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and welcome to Impact the Podcast, where we bring together some of entertainment's most creative minds to explore the themes and philosophies behind content creation. Today, join me in conversation with Glenn Powell, Tomi Adeyemi, and Eliza Scanlon to explore fresh perspectives on the entertainment industry. What is it like rising up in modern Hollywood? And what does the future hold for our industry? Does our generation have a responsibility to change things for the better? And how can we do that? Don't forget to subscribe to Impact the Podcast for new episodes every Wednesday. Glenn Powell is an actor and writer known for his roles in Set It Up, Hidden Figures, and Everybody Wants Some. And this December, you can find him taking flight alongside Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick. Glenn's journey into Hollywood began all the way back in Austin, Texas, where he kept two things in mind, fun and intentionality. You know, everybody, everybody moves out to L.A. for a different reason, you know, um, and I think that reason is very, very important to the journey that you have out here. For me, I had very supportive parents. Um, I don't think that anybody in my family ever looked at, you know, uh, acting because I, I acted out of Austin. So Austin had sort of a, a growing film community when I grew up there. Uh, there was sort of a movie or so that would shoot there, but it was never like my identity. It was never like what I did because there's just not enough to support it. Right. So I was just a regular, you know, kid. I was a student. I was an athlete. I, you know, um, and I always loved movies. You know, I would watch musicals with my grandmother. I loved action movies with my dad. We'd stay in the theater all day on Saturdays. Um, and so I grew up with a love of movies and I got to participate in some movies growing up in Austin but never really looked at it as a, as a sort of a career because mm -hmm. everybody I knew that had moved out to LA kind of left with their tail between their legs. Um, you know, they gave it a shot. The town just beat the heck out of them, left them a shell of a human being and sent them back to Texas. And I was like, well, that didn't sound fun. Um, so I never, I just always sort of did it for fun. And then I did a movie uh, when I was uh, a senior in high school called The Great Debaters that Denzel Washington directed. And uh, Denzel's agent, Ed Lamato happened to be on set when we were shooting. And Ed, you know, um, I talked to him for a little bit. He said, you know, he's like, oh, you remind me of a young Richard Gere. I was like, oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. And most people don't probably won't know who Ed Lamato is because he's part of sort of this old guard. But he was known for discovering i didn't know who he was when i met him um he was known for discovering some of the biggest movie stars of all time you know he had he was known for having an eye for talent and he he told me on set he was like you know um you're really really good i was like oh thanks man and that was sort of it and then i uh i found out who he was later and i was like oh that's awesome that's kind of cool and denzel's like that's that's a that's a solid that's a solid endorsement from that guy and I got a call from him when I was in my dorm room at the University of Texas, and he basically asked if I was coming out for the premiere of Great Debaters, and I said yes, and he said we should sit down and we should talk it out. So we ended up talking it out, and he said, I think you should move out to L.A. And at this point, I was like, I just started college. I was having a blast. Hook em horns. You know, leaving Austin, Texas, especially the University of Texas, like, I've been wanting to be a Longhorn my entire life. Um, it, it was just, it was like, do I really want to move, give that up and move out to LA? Um, and, and I sort of talked it out with my parents and 
Ed and the whole gang. And I said, okay, cool. Let's double down on this thing. Let's go out there. So I, you know, you're never going to have a better endorsement than this guy. Right. Um, so I, I will say I lucked out in the fact that my parents were very supportive of, of that idea. They weren't, I think, I think if I, cause it's not even, it was the emotional support yeah. that I think ruins people when they first move out. I think it's, it's the fact that you're going to, you, you know, you're about to go through a horrible uh, trial of your self-worth and your talent and your financially, you're going to be shipwrecked and you know, you're going to, that that's going to be part of the journey. And if you don't have the emotional backing by people you love, it's a really, really hard deal. Um, and most people, I think that's what sort of makes most most people pack it up and call it a day. No way I would have been able to do it without without them um, because they're sort of, you know, I'm very, anybody that knows me knows I'm very close with my family. So um, I'm glad I'm glad they were very supportive because uh, looking back on it, I don't think anybody saw that it was going to go this well, but I think I'm really glad. I'm really glad it is. If you grew up in Texas, like Glenn and I both did, you have this ingrained sense of grit running through your blood. I shared a story from my time at the University of Texas when Professor Matthew McConaughey told us making it in Hollywood and really life itself is about hustling and building your own doors, not waiting around for doors to open. So through this shared lens of tenacity, Glenn recounted his journey of getting his start in LA and the lengths he went to to create his own opportunities. I've been out in LA for about 12 years now. Um, and most of that time is absolute failure, right. like almost all of it. And, you know, I, I think, I think he's absolutely right in the fact that, you know, you don't be, there's a lot of doors. Every door is going to be blocked. Like casting directors don't like me. Like these people don't like me. These, you know, I can't get an agent. I can't do all this. Like there's so many impediments to progress uh, and, and, and sort of any sort of finding any sort of uh, winning inches in this town that you have, you do have to create it. You do have to create your own doors. I liken it to like, when I tell people like, they're like, so how did you do it? I'm like, it's basically like in football where you hit the line. If you're running back, you hit the line, there's no gap there. You find a hole and you run through it. And, you know, for me, it wasn't working out for the type of roles that I wanted to play or, you know, nobody wanted to do this, but I just kept finding gaps, yeah. right? Like, what did people need? Like always, I was never, I was never like waiting for the call. I was always, I was always producing something. I was always, I was always making, making uh, the phone ring in my own way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I think, I think, I think he's absolutely right. Like it, it takes, it takes a certain, certain type of person to get, you know, scrape yourself off the floor every morning in this town and do something productive where, you know, it's basically probably going to bear no fruit. Right. Like there was years in LA out here where I couldn't get representation. I'd, I'd sort of had a, you know, Ed and, you know, who was an amazing agent, but after he passed away, I sort of went agentless for a bit. You know, I had some agents that tried to represent me. It didn't really work out. So I was sort of back to square one. And I did this thing where I would like, I would email, I would, I would, 
I paid some guy for the emails to the casting directors. I also got the the breakdown services and this thing called show facts and which is like what they're casting currently and what the sides are. And I would basically shoot an audition every day. And when I, I started doing this, when I had agents, then I didn't have agents anymore. I just started directly shooting them to casting directors, which kind of pisses them off because it's not the way things are done. But uh, every once in a while it worked yeah. and, and you do that every day eventually even if even if no one says yes you get better you keep acting every day and that's one of those things that if i started looking at the odds of me sending this video off into nowhere probably no one ever sees it um i would probably be loaded down with doubt and like and just being like what what am i doing what's the point but you sort of have to look at i sort of had to conceptualize that period of time when things what i was like Literally had no money, couldn't get auditions, no prospects, like no one, no one believed. Like I, when I tell you no one believed in it, I was, I'm telling you, I was like, this is, this is rough. I knew I was not going to go home, but I was thinking, am I going to be an agent? Am I going to be an exec? Am I going to be a writer? You know, is there something else in this town that I can do Right. that, that I can, you know, sort of fulfill that love of movies? Um, and soon enough you just start you just kind of just knock on the door every day soon enough the freaking bolts get a little weakened and and it opens you know (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's great is that how you got into writing as well during that time yeah I actually was um a script reader for a Texas producer uh on the Sony lot named Linda Opes um and so I was reading scripts for her for a while and what I would do is in order to meet people, I would ask her to read the scripts outside. She was a tiny little office in there. And I was like, I just get claustrophobic in here. I, I trust me, I'll read faster than anybody. I'll do more covers than anybody, but let me go outside. Yeah. So I would literally sit on the main like thoroughfare of Sony and read scripts. And um, soon enough, I started kind of, you know, I started being a familiar face to people on the lot. So, you know, at the commissary or whatever, you'd start to strike up conversations. Um, and that was sort of how I did that. And then I also wrote a couple screenplays, really not very good screenplays. Um, looking back on them, they were kind of horrendous, but I sold them and they paid the rent and they were to nobody legitimate, you know, I mean, they were, they were small production companies, very fringe sort of places, but so they were never going to get made. Uh, but they, they, you know, gave me enough money to kind of keep playing the game, stay at the, stay at the poker table, so to speak. Rising up in Hollywood and coming into your own is a learning curve and having mentors to inspire and educate you is incredibly impactful. So what has Glenn taken away from some of the greats he's been able to know and work with? I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of my heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have sort of modeled my career after a lot of, you know, a lot of um, different people that I've actually gotten the chance to work with, you know, some guys like uh, Sylvester Stallone, right? I got to work with Sly on, on Expendables. He's a guy who no one wanted to hire. He wrote his way into a job that changed his life forever and continued writing and continued creating franchises, continued uh, creating work for himself. Um, and, 
and never believed that he was born to be on top. He always knew that he was going to have to work Mm -hmm. for the next job or to stay relevant or to stay, you know, to be able to make the movies that he wanted to make. He's, he's a, he's a fighter. I mean, literally Sly said to me one time, we have very different perspectives on this. uh, But, but I remember he said to me, he's like, you wake up every day and you either win or you lose. And that's a really, really, that's a fighter's perspective, right? Like, like a very intense way to go through life but sly that's who he is you know he's he every every moment you either win or you lose and and the guy fights and so i respect that because the town if it can kick you out it will definitely kick you out if you are if you show the weird the weird heart the weird thing about this job is that you have to be bulletproof and vulnerable at the same time so you the job is to be very vulnerable, to be an emotional machine, to be able to to focus and hone all these different feelings and emotions, which means you have to be very sensitive. You have to be in touch with yourself. But it also means all the horrible things that people say about you, all the no's that you get sort of can't affect you. So it's this weird paradox. Uh, this town is a very weird place. But through Sly, I watched him turned failure into storytelling Mm -hmm. failure was only a part of his journey to success you know um and someone you know i've got i got to work with tom cruise on uh on on top gun and tom is literally the guy that i've modeled pretty much all of my acting choices after um you know his early career i think will go down as one of the greatest the greatest eras of of movies you know of all time i mean he he he's given us some of the greatest cinematic gifts ever and he um you know seeing his love of movies um how after three and a half four decades the guy is so giddy about making movies and loves every single part of it um that He's he's a true example of when they say never meet your heroes. You haven't met Tom Cruise. Like he really inspires you to love the job, love the process. Um, you know, and he's obsessed with everything from camera angles to composition to music to lighting. Like he's just obsessed with it. Blocking, you know, it's like he's just he can nerd out with you about movies all day, every day. And you know that's an inspiring thing to me you know he's one of the you know he's one of the guys that i look at and i go i'd love to be doing this job till i'm old and gray and tom will probably be doing you know hanging off of planes till he's old and gray it's like he's 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 made of something else but i think i think the best the best lesson the best thing i've like i've done since i've been gotten to work with all these guys is really just be curious about which is another thing that grazer obviously always talks about is be curious about uh, the world. Be curious about, um, you know, not only like learn from your heroes, but learn from people who have made the mistakes on the way up. I mean, I'm really grateful for the slow burn on the way up, how long it's taken, because I've gotten to see a lot of other people, all the rise and fall of a lot of other people who found success more immediately than I did. But I got to watch like, why why it didn't last like like now that that that's why i like got to see okay 
how did you treat people? Did you develop for yourself? Did you connect with the right people? How deliberate were you with your choices? Um, you know, did you, did you care about the life, all the things that movie stardom can give you, or did you care about movies? Right. And the people that stick around care about movies. They care about storytelling. Um, so it's, it was a very, it was a very helpful thing for me to be able to have that, that education, not only by taking advice from people like Tom or, you know, Sly or Kevin Costner or any of these guys, but, um, you know, get, get lessons from the, the horror stories that you see every day out in LA. How can we as the new generation take what our mentors have taught us and apply it to our work and the larger philosophies of content creation as we move forward? Kevin Costner, actually, I was one of my favorite moments was really kind of surreal because I'm a huge fan of Kevin Costner, but he invited me to a, uh, a Braves game. We were uh, shooting in Atlanta and we went to a Dodgers Braves game and we're sitting like right behind the dugout. He's got great seats. We're just sitting there. And I just got to like pick his brain about uh, sort of his career. And if anybody's met Kevin, there is no, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He will tell you he's a very realistic. He's like a salty, <laughs> salt of the earth kind of guy where he's just, he, he's very realistic about um, about the world. Like, I mean, and he, he, he would give me advice about everything from, what type of movies, you know, what type of movies uh, will be working to what kind of girls not to date, uh, to, you know, to uh, to what other skills I should be honing. And one of the one of my my favorite piece of advice from them from that day that I've taken with me on everything piece of development that I've kind of put into the pipeline is the thoughts and ideas that are in every movie that you make. That is all that you leave behind in this world, right? As an actor, we uh, very few of us ever get, as, as people, we very rarely get to give like a eulogy or, or you know, a sort of, um, of sorts of like how we feel about the world before we leave it, right? And what he says is you have a really interesting opportunity and take it, take it, um, seriously in the fact that you're going to have, when, when it's all said and done, you're going to have a career of movies that tell stories about people, real people, sometimes fictional people, but you're going to be putting ideas into the world in, 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 in the scope of millions, sometimes billions of people. So don't take that responsibility lightly. Those ideas can have more power than you can even imagine in terms of whether they inspire uh, you know, or, or do the opposite, you know? And so just don't take that responsibility lightly. I, I've always taken that every, every movie that I have sort of coming up, every movie that I've like, um, I'm making, I always remember what Costner told me and just say, how is this going to affect the world? How's this going to affect the minds of people that watch it, no matter how old they are. Speaking of how movies can impact and influence the world, we're currently operating in a very strange time of the global pandemic and a time where people are isolated and craving connectivity, which is an insatiable need that Hollywood can service by utilizing entertainment to bring people together. I have a lot of friends that are international and live all over the world. And regardless of what government is doing what or what's happening with coronavirus, the one thing we can all talk about 
is what we're watching and how that brings us back all together. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things because you're absolutely right. It's like you can meet a lot of strangers mm-hmm. and how much can you possibly have in common sometimes with people that you just met, right? But you're absolutely right. Like a great movie, connecting with someone about how much you love a movie. Um, and I ask people like, you'll, you'll see me do that. And I'm like, oh, like what, what kind of movies? Like, have you watched anything you love recently? What's your favorite movie? And when I, because it really does give you an insight into someone's like, into their heart like what they care about like what makes them laugh all those things um i i think it's the greatest litmus test of of a friendship in a in a lot of ways and even if i don't agree with the movie i love hearing about why people love these movies because it helps me to see you know how they think in a way that even if i'm like okay i actually didn't find that movie funny or i didn't find that movie like it didn't move me at all i can go oh that's part of their story what connected in them to that story because not stories aren't not every story is for everybody you know um but i love that yeah i do i do i do think that there is going to be an interesting sort of a renaissance uh after all this is said and done because of the amount of like not i wouldn't say collective pain but uh, we've all been fighting this thing on different fronts and everybody's fighting their own battle everybody's got their own story out of this thing and what it means to them and how, how it's affected them And what I think, and people are finally having the time to kind of look at themselves in the mirror, Mm -hmm. which is half of being like a great artist, I think, is looking in the mirror and going, like, how am I really feeling? Like stewing sometimes in misery, stewing in regret, stewing in anger, like those sort of things and and marinating on those things. And I think what you're going to, you're going to find out of this is that people have, are feeling more than they've ever felt before and have the time to produce art which I think is going to have this just amazing surge of creativity and wonderful, hopefully wonderful movies and hopefully wonderful TV shows uh, that come out of it. I think absolutely. And also people deciding what they value now to a different extent. I mean, I'm close with my family. I spent seven weeks in Austin with them, but I have friends that have never spent that amount of time with their parents ever and are now home being like, wow, this is pretty cool. And can we have more pieces of content we can watch together? It is true. I mean, I, I really think, I really think, um, I, I'm, you know, look, I'm, I would say I'm kind of an eternal optimist in that way though. I, I, I tend to try to find the silver lining in things. Um, but I do think that for as horrible this has been, it's going to be very detrimental for a lot of businesses. It's going to be very detrimental um, you know, obviously for people that have lost loved ones and whatnot, but I think for the film business, it's expedited this shift from old school, sort of this, the, the theatrical model to this streamer model. And I don't think the theatrical model is ever going to go away. I hope it never goes away. I, I do think it's going to, I think it's going to evolve into a really, really fun sense where I think entertainment is going to be uh, take more risks. I think it's going to be open to new storytellers. I think there's never been a better time to be in Hollywood than right now. Cause I think, I think we're about to see a serious content boom yeah. and how you, how you sort of separate yourself or at least like define yourself within that is going to be really fascinating. Interesting. Tomi Adeyemi is a number one New York Times bestselling author for her novels, The Children of Blood and Bone and The Children of Virtue and Vengeance, 
which she scored a publishing deal for at just 23 years old. But as a child, Tomi did not envision herself as an author, and originally set out on a path dictated by societal expectations. But it was also these cultural pressures that taught Tomi the work ethic she attributes to her success today. When I look at my origin story, something I've always thought that made a big impact on me was being Nigerian. And not that being Nigerian means you need to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Um, And so what that means as a kid is you need to work really hard. You need to get good grades. They very much view like your job is school and you don't have any other job because I'm doing the job that pays the bill. So you need to be good at school. You don't get to go there and, and not work hard. Even if a subject isn't like intuitive to you, I'm still expecting you to walk out with an A plus. So I was a very stressed out child. <laughs> I was a very neurotic child. I was a very much like, I have to, I have to do it. I have to do, I have to do a good job. I have to do a good job. Um, And it just really pounded into me the value of working really hard. And and the concept of working really hard for long stretches of time and then getting a big payoff. Mm -hmm. Because it would, whether it was like getting a certain thing in high school or working really hard in high school, like putting an insane amount of pressure on myself, but then getting into Harvard and it's like, okay, well, I believe that was worth it. Um, So it's sort of like what was creating this long-term reward system in my, I guess, in my brain (laughs) that was helpful because a lot of things that I think are worth doing as an adult require you to really just work hard with absolutely no payoff for a very long time. But if you do it hard, you do it passionately, you do it right, then the lightning can strike and suddenly the things you want are like rolling through, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And then so coming from that world where you're expected to be a lawyer or a doctor, was there a specific moment or book that made you say, oh no, that is another option for me. I could write and I would love to do that. I thought I was going to be a doctor and not for any noble reason. It was just presented to me that you have three options. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be a lawyer because I don't feel like arguing with people all day. I don't like talking to people. And then I was like, I don't want to be a business person. I don't feel like selling things. So I guess I'll be a doctor. That was like my, I guess. Um, And then I got to college. And during a pre-orientation program, I got introduced to like the entertainment business. And I never thought about entertainment as a business. I was like, we got, we have seven Harry Potter movies. And so I know Daniel Radcliffe is a job in Hollywood. <laughs> I assume the guy who films it is a job. Like, those were the only two jobs for me. So having someone come in who's like, I did sound on the Harry Potter movies. And I was like, what does that mean? It opened up this, like, oh, there's maybe four jobs in the world. What's this fourth one? So I was kind of slowly pulling myself into entertainment business And even I've been writing since I was a kid, but I never told people about it. I never shared that with anyone. And so I think in my heart, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but in my brain, I didn't trust that that was an actual possibility. So I was like, okay, business is real. You can do entertainment business. So it was my college and post-college path was just slowly 
pushing into that. And then I was working in a production studio after I graduated college. And I was in what was supposed to be like a data-driven marketing part of it, like Moneyball, basically, for advertising movies and television shows. And I'm like, cool, let's learn. Um, but it turned into uploading ads to Twitter for television shows, which is as uninspiring as it sounds. And so it the work was was very easy, but my soul felt crushed by it. And it was in that period that I started really putting my extra time and energy into trying to get published. And I'd been working on a book and I was like, well, let's go with it because I wanted someone to read it and say, instead of writing from six to midnight, you can write from nine to six, like you can be good enough. And obviously no one said that, but it was the act of again, trying, working for four years because I'd started the book in college, working really hard for something that had no payoff and wanting to try again, that's how I knew like, no, you're serious about this. And if you dedicated 85% of your time trying to be successful at this, as opposed to the 15% of your time you've dedicated to trying to be successful at this, it's likely that you can be successful at this. So it, it was really, it was it was that eight months, or I'll say the six months I spent in the adult world. You don't have homework anymore. You don't have gold stars. You don't you need to try and be in this club to try and be president. It was just this like, oh, you, you no one's telling you what you have to be good at. You decide what you want to be good at. And you decide if you want to try and get money for being good at that thing. And so it was like realizing I had to make my own curriculum now. Right. I think. Amazing. I love what you said too about the slow pull. My least favorite expression ever is when people say, oh, she's an overnight success or he's an overnight success. Yes. Anyone that's an overnight <laughs> success is like years and years and years of hard yes. and so many no's until something sticks. I talk about that a lot, especially with like people, I'll say people who have achieved in their late teens or 20s. I'm always just like, I'm like, okay, maybe Chance the Rapper wins three Grammys at 23. But when did he put out his first mixtape? When did he put out 10 Day? Like how many years before that? How many years of acid rap? How many, you know, it's like, it's easy to just look at a number, but I'm like, there's actually, usually when I, when I chart it, I don't ever really see a disparity. Like there are some wonderkins that don't, don't even belong on the chart because they do just get there. Um, everyone else who's really good at something, it, they take about the same. It's like the 10,000 hours thing. If you agree with that strategy, a lot of those people just started their 10,000 hours early. I started writing as soon as I could make words, as soon as I could, as soon as I could put words together, I was writing. So now I'm like, I'm about to be 27. So I can say I've been writing for at least 20 years and I was writing for at least 15 years before someone paid me to do it. And I've been trying really hard at it for like two years. I'll say two to three years. Okay, yeah. So I'll say of those 15 years, I tried really hard at it for three years. And that's when mm -hmm. there was a payday. That's when it was like, oh, I can now put a roof over my head and tie food on my table from this thing I like to do. Cool. The Children of Blood and Bone series has been widely praised for bringing Black characters to the forefront, 
Tomi's choice to craft powerful Black protagonists came from reflecting on her own youth and societal issues she recognized from her own life, and thinking about how she can create novels that she would have identified with as a young person to promote positivity and inclusion for the next generation. I'll say, okay, so the first 10 years of writing, maybe that first year, that the first two years, I wrote stories with characters who look like me. And then around year three, they started getting lighter and whiter and their hair, you know, so I started writing, instead of writing character stories with protagonists, like dark-skinned Black female protagonists, they became light-skinned, they became white, suddenly they had red hair and green eyes. And I did that for eight years before I realized I was doing something very bad because all of my stories have always been like fantasy memoir fan fiction. So if I wrote about a girl finding a magic rock and getting the powers of lightning, it's because I really wanted to find a magic rock and be able to shoot lightning out of my hand. If I wrote about a girl with bright red hair having a magical adventure, it's because I wanted to be white and have bright red hair and have a magical adventure. So I started like, as I psychoanalyzed myself, I'm like, oh, you have issues. Um, And these issues have been internalized because all these stories you love never have someone who looks like you. So what that translates to in a mind becomes, oh, I'm not okay. If I was okay, I would be here. If I was okay, I would, and this isn't anti the stories of my youth, because I think we're in such a a transformative, but also highly emotional time that we start kind of pivoting and attacking things that we're like, okay, but let's look at the time period. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the time the time period. I don't like I rewatched the Harry Potter movies during this quarantine and it was like everything. It was everything. And I was just sitting there. You know, and I'm like, no, you can't you there I I am here because of the Harry Potter movies. You know, it's like we're talking about my book series. I have all these books in my shelf. I have this, you where I'm like, oh no, these, we are so quick to attack what things didn't do as opposed to celebrate like, okay, could something have been more diverse? Sure. Did it create me? Yeah. Um, am, am I trying to give more children? Am I trying to give little Tommy the big fantasy with also someone who looks like her so she doesn't spend 10 years writing stories with people who don't look like her because she thinks she doesn't belong in her own imagination of course but it's like i'm i'm we can only do a little bit we can only hope to do better all of us are wrong in 10 years you're going to be able to pick apart a hundred things i could have done better and it's not why didn't you do that 10 years ago it's like okay who's creating today What do you know today that we didn't know then? Okay, how can we create around that? How can we do a little better? If we all just, if we always just keep doing a little better as opposed to trying to tear everything down and yell at everyone. And it's like, why'd you, 
say this 14 years ago. It's like, what? I don't know what I said 14 days ago. I don't know. You know, it's like, that's not, that was literally 14 years ago. Let's talk about today. What is it? June, what day is it? June 25th. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, let's, I can't, we can't, we, I think we waste so much time talking about the past as opposed to, to actively working to better the future. Um, and so that's how I look at it, where it's like, it very much was, I just, I want this, this was the fantasy I wanted to read, so I created it. Um, and it also very much was, I created it to save little Tomies. Um, and then I get to meet little Tomies and they're like, I wanna do that. And I'm like, uh-uh, you better do it better. I was like, don't grow up 10 years with this book and not like wipe my ass, you know, you better hand my ass to me, you tell me a story so good. Like that, you need to be better. And then someone after you should be, it's like, it should keep, it should be a stairway. Mm-hmm. It should escalate. And I think we get to see that in a really loving way in sports. We get to see how a Michael Jordan creates a Kobe Bryant, how a Kobe Bryant impacts a LeBron James, um, where the quarantine for me has been a, a time of looking at stories that way. I get to see how a J.R.R. Tolkien inspires a young J.K. Rowling. I get to see how a young J.K. Rowling inspires a young Tony. I can't wait to see what I inspire because I'll just be like, yes, get it. So much better. That was better. You know, like, it's like, do it. Let's make today better. Let's make tomorrow better. Let's make next year better. Let's do the things that we are in control of that we have knowledge to control. So that's how I look at my stories of like, I know what I didn't, I know what, I know all the amazing things the stories of my youth gave me. And I know all the things that I didn't get from them that I had to find elsewhere. So now I'm trying to, to combine that. Right. And then someone else will fill in another gap and someone else will fill in another gap. Tomi's books, although fantasy tales, address a lot of very real topics like war and oppression and loss. When thinking about her audience, Tomi knew literature could be an avenue and a safe space to talk about the hurt that kids are seeing in the world. I think the best literature is a safe space to confront the evils of existence i believe to be alive me is this was like my my sort of life philosophy transition in book two because that's the other weird thing my main care all of my characters are a lot like me but daily is like whatever daily's struggling with is what i'm struggling with in my life book one daily's very afraid and when i wrote children of blood and bone i was very afraid i was terrified that i was going to get in my car Um, and be stopped by a police officer and shot. I was terrified that someone I loved was going to get in their car and be stopped by a police officer and shot. And then in book two, Zaylee's really afraid. uh, She's trying to, she's been through so much pain that she is now living to try and avoid pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't work. And, And for me, what she kind of realizes, what I realize is like, oh, life is pain. Life is pain. It's not there's there's some moments of pain. It's like life is very painful. It's very physically painful. It's very mentally painful. It's very emotionally painful. It's like from the moment you take your first breath, you already know that one day you're not going to be breathing anymore. That's pretty painful. My dog's right here. She's taking a peaceful nap. Why? Because she doesn't have to contemplate 
contemplate her own mortality. She's fine. She just wants a snack. So it's like, it, I just realized that like, oh, life isn't about running away from the pain. It's about staring at the fact that life is pain. And there's a kind of peace in that because it's like, okay, well, life can also be love. Life can also be joy. Life can also be happiness. It could also be laughter. So it's like, maybe let me work hard at making sure my life isn't just a life of pain, that it involves some of the really cool parts of life too. Tomi is going to be taking the power of her series to a whole different side of entertainment, the screen, and have another avenue to have a cultural impact on the world. She's looking critically at how cinema can affect mentality and how she can use her platform to push the next generation into a brighter tomorrow. Something very happy that's happening is you got a huge movie deal with Lucasfilm as the first franchise outside of Star Wars. First off, congratulations. That's Thank you. so exciting. And Thank you. I know you worked in entertainment as well. So what does this movie deal mean to you and what do you hope to really do with it? Yeah, when, I, when it first happened a couple of years ago, it there was just this like, the dream is coming true. The dream is coming. You know, I'm like, you know, you're like, again, you're like, I have these dreams and it's a thing. And I, it, it, that was honestly what really hit me rewatching the quarantine mm -hmm. because those movies are so tied to my childhood that I could, I felt like I was sitting right next to the kid that I was watching them growing up being like, Oh, what I would give to get to write books like this, what I would give to get to have them adapted to the screen, to have these people live it. You know, that that was as big of a fantasy as getting a letter to Hogwarts. Right. And so as I'm re-watching them and I'm like, I'm like, oh dude, you're living that fantasy. You're living that your Cinderella wish, you're living it. And so there was that, and then there's the idea of like, oh, and now you don't just get to watch these and feel great. You get to text the director and be like, hey, this very important thing happened in the first film, and there's, there's something they did with the color grading, and something I think we should think about. You know, like, like you get to play. I always call it playing with Legos. That's how I feel about stories. It's like it's like a Lego set, and I get really crazy eyes, and I'm like, leave me in here and let me play some like Beyonce, and let me just let me let me build a castle. And I so it 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 represents this like oh this dream and the possibility of the dream, and then it also to me represents kind of what we talked about, not just a chance to create. Um, but a chance to, okay, what can I, that was such an amazing story. It had such a big impact on the world. How can we use this story to have a conscious impact on the world? What is it going to mean? What would it have meant if Harry Potter had been black? What would that have, let's, let's black, positive black mirror episode. What do we think happens in the rest of the world? If we spend 20 years obsessing over a boy who looks like this, what, what's the follow through? And so it's thinking really critically about the fact that we have this stage, this stage from which we want to tell an incredible story, but that we also want this story to make the world better. We want it to give it empathy. We want it to, yeah, just really change things because we know it, it can help. Not even it can help. I think stories are so 
our lives revolve around stories and not just like the stories we see in movies, but the stories we tell each other. You asked my origin story, you know, it's like, I was like, what's the story of this? Were you planning this before? Was it close? Every story is the only way we can communicate what is otherwise the completely random set of events that is life. We draw meaning when there's a story. And so it's like, we, we have a stage to tell this epic story and I, I got claws <laughs> because I'm like epic I was like as epic as expecto you know like I was like ah oh. I was like there should be chills there should be tears there should be cinematic score but then it's also like and we can do it in a way to attempt to leave a leave our fingerprints on the world Eliza Scanlon is a 21-year-old actress known for her roles on screen in Sharp Objects and Little Women, and also on Broadway in Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird. Coming from Australia, Eliza's interest in acting actually stemmed from a more holistic interest in content creation, which is incredibly relevant now as Eliza turns her eye towards directing. Like we didn't come, I didn't come from a particularly um, art-driven family. I guess my parents always respected the arts and they took me to the theater and art galleries. Um, but there was no real focus on the arts. My, my dad and my mom ran a storage company. Um, but I think we just grew up to be naturally very playful kids. And I had an, I have an older brother and a twin sister and there was always someone to play with. And I think to have a sister to go through every step of life with definitely um, changed me as a person. And um, yeah, I, I guess my interest in it began when I started to uh, see more theater and um, began to kind of imagine myself in that on stage. Um, and that really drew me, I guess. Yeah, I guess I just, I actually really fell in love with like, with, with filmmaking. It wasn't necessarily the acting bit. And then I started doing classes at um, this uh, acting school in Sydney called NIDA. And um, I was doing short courses every Sunday there. And yeah, I was kind of just trying to get my hands on, on anything and everything. It wasn't anything in particular. In her young career, Eliza has been able to work with some of the world's top female creatives like Marty Noxon and Greta Gerwig. How has working in such women-driven environments affected Eliza and encouraged her to pursue directing? Yeah, I think it's had a very, um, I, I think it's obviously had a, a subconscious impact on how I approach filmmaking and my kind of inclination to step into other roles other than um, acting. Uh, but yeah, I do feel really lucky that I've been, um, uh, I've stepped into the industry at an ideal time or a, a time where it's, um, where things are changing for the better. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I quite realized the, how profound that was when I was doing sharp objects. It was still such a new industry to me. And, um, especially a, a, a film, well, a series at that scale and that caliber, I was just 
it was just another world to me. And um, I didn't realize how lucky I was to be kind of swaddled and cradled by um, Amy and Patricia. And, uh, you know, it was created by a woman. There were female producers and it was about, it, there were three female leads. And um, I didn't realize how rare that was. And uh, obviously then working, going on to work with Greta and Sersha and Florence and Emma, I, um, I was, you know, deeply, deeply changed by them and seeing them work on a set. Um, because at that point I'd never really met anyone my age that had experienced what I had experienced. And I was really struggling to come to terms with just the reality of it really. And, um, I just graduated from high school and, uh, I picked up my whole life and moved to LA for this series. And um, it was a huge life change and I had really no one to talk about the experience with until I met those girls on Little Women. And, um, and it was just, yeah, again, a really profound experience. And then to go on to do Baby Teeth with, again, a, um, a female director, it's, of course, it, it has to somehow implicitly affect mm-hmm. me. Our generation has grown up in a media-saturated age with the constant inundation of information and entertainment and social media. These things are present every day of our memorable lives, which gives us a unique perspective on the role and responsibility entertainment has in the larger scope of the world. TV and film is so omnipresent and... um, more than ever, young people are growing up constantly being exposed to content and it's really, really important what type of content they are being exposed to. And, um, you know, I think that while there has been a rise in content, it doesn't mean there's necessarily been a rise in the quality of content. And um, I I think if we we took responsibility or, or just recognise that, our voice is probably more impactful and more influential than we even realize for young people. I think we could, we could result, you know, result in making some really interesting work and, and TV and film, it, it, it uh, reflects society. But I think if we're not reflecting it in an inclusive way, then it becomes redundant and reductive and actually just, it distorts people's views more than it does um, enlighten them. Um, so I think we just, I think we need to be more careful with it. It's its a really fragile thing. Um, and I think a lot of people, they just watch TV and film for entertainment and they don't really see it for its social impact. Um, and that's fine, but I do think that it affects them in that way without them realizing. Um, so I guess if we just took it a bit more seriously, perhaps we could yeah. change things for the better. Um, and I mean, what's what's the point of doing it if you don't believe that, you know? And I found that as a young person um, directing my first film, I think what makes my voice important is that I'm part of a generation that hasn't really 
been able to voice their filmic perspective on a global level before. I just don't think we're quite yet that, that like there yet because we're still very, I'm 21, I'm still quite young. Um, but I'm looking forward to the day where we can see um, more realistic depictions of, of uh, our experience in the digital age and growing up with internet culture. Um, I mean, we've seen Euphoria, which was great, um, but something that's perhaps like a little bit more realistic and there's this there's this show in Australia called um it was based off a, a film and it's called Puberty Blues and it was it was like a coming of age series about um life in Australia in the 60s 70s and um I'd be really excited to see something of that nature set in um the years that I was growing up in high school because I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting theme to explore how internet culture pervades um, the lives of young people now, um, at, but do it in a really unflinching, honest way. You know, there was a time in high school where everybody was obsessed with Facebook and um, like having a, a pretty profile picture on Facebook was so important. And if you didn't get over a hundred likes, that meant you were uncool. And I just remember the sheer like panic that you'd go through trying to take a photo and, you know, you decide the photo, you post it on on Facebook. And if, and if it doesn't pass a hundred likes, just the sheer panic of, of that whole experience. Great. Oh my God. Like that is some, that is some really anxiety inducing stuff there that we had to go through. What is our responsibility as the new generation to change our industry? From Eliza's point of view, it begins with education and collaboration. But I think it begins with uh, making sure everyone's voice is heard. And I think that also begins with development and funding and um, putting money in the right place. That's not necessarily an easy thing to do because a lot of the, the creatives don't have any control over that. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, run by a completely different, um, completely different sphere of knowledge. Like uh, finance is something that is daunting to me and something I don't understand. And um, the world of development is very different to the world of actually making a film. Um, and, you know, pre-production, production, post-production, post it's not, they're totally different um, entities. And uh, I think that's really hard to find, a, to find like a common ground and to, to make sure everybody's voice is heard through that. So it's, it, it is a, it's a, it's a really good question. And I'm, I'm not quite, quite sure yet. I, if I'm going to be honest, but I think the world at the moment, it's in, we're in such a turbulent uh, time. And I, I, I think it's really important to, it's been really important for us to stop and reflect and um, actually recognize how we have been complicit in some ways as to 
as to the, I guess, the downfall of humanity right now. Um, and to, instead, instead of using this time to keep creating content, I've really enjoyed using the time to educate myself and, and relearn stuff. And, and, and people are kind of, people are, un, are dubbing it as unlearning. And I've been really enjoying um, doing that and um, actually just accepting that there's a lot of stuff I need to learn before I have permission to tell a story um, in, an, in the most inclusive way possible. Um, and I think, I, I just hope that, I guess the age of the ego is over um, because we don't make good work when it's from a singular person. I, I think it needs to be, if anything, more collaborative. Otherwise we don't, it isn't, it isn't inclusive. Um, and so forgetting this idea that I, I, like the director is God or the writer is God, I think the more collaborative it is, the better and the more rewarding it is for everybody else on a, on just like a, on an emotional, mental level. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's um, about taking one step at a time with that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode on Fresh Perspectives. And don't forget to follow at Impact Imagine on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date. We'd like to thank our Impact speakers for their time, wisdom, and supporting the creative community. We would also like to thank Impact's founders, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, and Tyler Mitchell for making this all possible. Until next time, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and have a great day.